Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. I'm sure you all remember a man named Ted Kaczynski. He was named the Unabomber. For 17 years, Ted Kaczynski made and mailed bombs to key people. He killed three people. And- Today, I'm honored to have Max Noel as my guest. Good morning, Max. Good morning. Uh, thanks so much for being here, Max. Max is a former, is a former criminal investigator, um, a criminal investigative agent, I should say, with the FBI. <laughs> and Max and other task force members tracked Kaczynski and apprehended him in front of his remote Montana mountain cabin. I've seen a picture of where that cabin is. It, was, it definitely was remote. Right, right, Max? Yeah, it, was, uh, it certainly was isolated. I'd put it that way. <laughs> So Max uh, spent 30 to 31 years in the San Francisco Division of the FBI. To, today, Max serves as a member of the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation's Deadly Force Review Board. What is that, Max? Uh, we review. It's a, we're a group of uh, approximately six former law enforcement uh, uh, people from both uh, local and, and federal. I represent the federal uh, agencies that uh, review the internal uh, investigations anytime uh, deadly force is used throughout the state of California in any one of the prison systems or by any one of the uh, uh, parole agents uh, out on the street. And uh, we don't review it for criminality. Uh, the district attorneys uh, do that. We review uh, the case for uh, uh, compliance with uh, procedure and policy and to determine if um, there's training needs or um, mm. equipment needs that the Department of Correction might uh, uh, put into effect to better do their job. Interesting. So, um, so somebody in prison in the... Um California Department of Corrections, somebody in prison dies from the hands of a correctional officer, then you would get involved and look at the procedures and the systems that were set up surrounding that to see what... what right, and there's a, they have a deadly we, force policy. They have a deadly force policy, which the <clears throat> Department of Corrections uh, uh, officers are uh, compelled to uh, follow. And uh, let's say there's a... Uh, uh, a riot within the prison or a disturbance within the prison, a fight or something, and in order to put it down or to quell it, uh, um, they deploy uh, deadly force uh, um, to suppress whatever's happening. And we determine whether or not their use of that force uh, is within the policy and procedure of uh, the Department of Corrections. That's interesting. And we, we write a report and submit it to uh, uh, the director. Uh, they call him something different now, but he used to be the director of uh, the Department of Corrections. Uh, our chair is uh, George Hart, former um, chief of police of uh, Oakland, California, and uh, mm-hmm. past president of the California Chief of Police Association. Yeah, remember him. Um, I'm, since I'm in Oakland, I do remember him. Yeah, uh, George is <laughs> a great guy. Yeah. Very, very good man, very competent person. Probably one of the most competent law enforcement people I ever worked with. Oh, great. That's nice, nice to hear that. So, 
Uh, Max, Ted Kaczynski wasn't the only high-profile case you were involved in. You, had, you have a long, actually, list of high-profile cases. Uh, I was in the right place at the right time. I was in San Francisco for 30 years during some of the most uh, uh, violent uh, uh, times in, in history. So um, as a result of that, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to be involved in a number of very high-profile cases, yes. Yeah, so some of those, the Weatherman Underground, certainly. Um, mm-hmm. some, some, some of our oldsters will remember that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Patty Hearst kidnapping, that was a big Yep. And then uh, the hijacking of a PSA flight, that was huge. And then how yeah, did you back get involved? Back at that particular time, there were lots of hijackings going on throughout the United States. We, we look at them now, and they're very few and far between. Back in the late 60s and the early 70s, uh, um, hijackings of domestic airlines uh, uh, were commonplace. Uh, they were happening all the time. Really? So, mm-hmm. Okay. And yeah. then uh, how did you get involved in Jimmy Hoffa and the dis- disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa? Um. I was a member of a new squad that uh, we had formed in San Francisco on labor racketeering and uh-huh. uh, potential um, uh, violations of uh, federal law as a, as a po- or as w- was occurring as a result of the disappearance of uh, uh, Jimmy Hoffa and as such um, developed some very um, high-profile uh, informants uh, which uh, assisted um, nationally in the uh, uh, search for the killer of uh, Jimmy Hoffa and uh, the eventual uh, case, which was called Liberatus in the FBI, uh, which became the uh, civil uh, takeover uh, of the Teamsters Union by uh, uh, the Federal Department of Justice. Mm. And um, I was one of the agents that uh, uh, worked that uh, over the nation. I certainly wasn't the agent, but I was one of the contributing agents. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, well, I, and I understand that, that uh, you guys do often work as a team system like that. Um, mm-hmm. And then the one that's come to light just recently, uh, Shrimp Boy Chow, right, de- right here in San Francisco, the conviction of San Francisco Chinatown's China organized crime. Um, he yeah, that was that was an interesting case because um, it was obvious that uh, problems were uh, occurring in Chinatown uh, uh, again, as they had uh, previously about ten or fifteen years, and with the um, um, takeover of uh, Hong Kong by um, uh, the Communist Chinese when it reverted from uh, British control, and the money that was coming out of um, uh, Asia. Uh, as a result of the uh, triads um, and dispersing it uh, to various places in um, the United States, San Francisco was one of those places. And as a result of that, we saw a lot of um, uh, traditional uh, criminal activity occurring uh, in a fight for turf in Chinatown. And uh, that resulted in the uh, creation in the San Francisco division of uh, the FBI of a uh, a new organized crime squad dedicated to... um, a Chinese organized crime, mm-hmm. and we had the uh, Wohopto triad coming into uh, uh, San Francisco, and uh, one of my best friends became the supervisor of that squad, and we had a, a plethora of young uh, Asian uh, FBI agents who uh, grew up 
uh, in the Asian community and culture who understood the uh, the language and the culture, uh, but they were very inexperienced as far as um, uh, investigative techniques. So my friend, the new supervisor, uh, melded uh, uh, about seven or eight of those young Chinese uh, Asian agents uh, with a number of us uh, older, uh, more experienced uh, uh, agents uh, who'd had experience in uh, electronic surveillance and surveillance techniques and uh, wiretaps and so forth. And uh, we were able to assist them in, in the case that eventually took down uh, uh, Peter Chong, the head of the Wuhapto uh, out of uh, uh, China and uh, Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow uh, is a street enforcer uh, in Chinatown and returned Chinatown at that particular time at least to a uh, um, state of uh, normalcy <laughs> where they weren't well, shooting and killing each other and fighting over yeah, turf. Exactly. And the interesting part about uh, Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow is he's back in the news last year associated with uh, former Senator Leland Yee and gun running and many other things. So, it, that, And that just happened, so that's uh, I- interesting. He's out of prison and he's in trouble again. Yeah. <laughs> yep. hard, okay. Hard to, so. <laughs> hard to teach uh, old dogs new tricks. Exactly. So, uh, Max, how did you get involved in the Unabomber case? Well, the Unabomber was dormant for a period of about six years. His previous bomb uh, had gone off in 1987 in Salt Lake City, and it had been very effective, but it hadn't killed the individual uh, who picked it up. It was it was uh, disguised as a road hazard. Uh, some two-by-fours nailed together with shiny nails coming out of them placed near the uh, front tire of a, of a vehicle. Mm-hmm. And the individual uh, who picked that up to, or attempted to pick it up to throw it away um, was injured severely. That bomb was exactly the same as a bomb the previous year which had killed the owner of a computer store in Sacramento. And uh, we know now from the writings that we took out of Ted Kuczynski's cabin that he was extremely frustrated because these two bombs were constructed exactly the same, made of the same uh, explosives and so forth, and one, in Kaczynski's words, killed effectively, and the other one did what Kaczynski believed to be superficial damage. So he went back to the drawing board, and he spent the next five and a half or six years experimenting and trying to perfect a better explosive and a better uh, method of, in his terms, killing effectively. So in June of 1993, uh, a bomb arrived at the uh, uh, Turan uh, home of um, a California, University of California professor uh, uh, at the medical facility, Charles, Dr. Charles Epstein. And it was a very small uh, package uh, arrived in the mail. It, it was about the size of a VHS tape, and uh, when Dr. Uh, Epstein opened it, it essentially blew his hands apart. Uh, he survived it, but it did uh, extensive damage to him. But the following uh, day, all the way across the country, back at Yale University, uh, New Haven, Connecticut, uh, Dr. David Garner, a very well-known computer scientist, came back from a week of being gone, 
uh, reviewing his mail on the weekend. Um, exactly the same uh, package uh, arrived for him, uh, padded Ziploc uh, package uh, from a person that he didn't recognize. He opened it and did the same thing to him. Uh, uh, he was very fortunate because um, he almost uh, uh, bled to death, uh, but he did survive. Um, at the same time, that weekend, a letter arrived at the New York Times um, to a fashion editor of all things named Warren Hogue. Hmm. And the letter was typed on an antique uh, typewriter with you, with the use of an antique typewriter. And it uh, essentially said, hi, uh, we're a uh, group known as FC by the FBI. If you don't know, if you don't know who that is, talk to the FBI, they'll tell us. We're not going to use the FC moniker anymore. Uh, here's a secret number. Um, we will use this to uh, validate any communication in the future. And we just wanted to announce that we're back and we're going to be committing acts of uh, terrorism again and, and so forth. And the one forensic thing that we'd had in the previous uh, 14 years of investigation on this case was that every communication, with the exception of one, had been typed on the same Smith Corona circa 1925-30 to typewriter uh, that had Pica-style type and 2.54 spacing. It was very, very exact. Um, This letter was typed on that typewriter, so there was no doubt that... um, it had been typed by the person that we called the Unabomber. And in that letter to Warren Hope, he took credit for both of the uh, bombings, uh, the one in Tiburon and the one at Yale University. So uh, it was obvious and that, that And just to interrupt, that was the same typewriter you folks found when you uh, searched his cabin. Uh, it was the very last thing we found. There were yeah. two other antique typewriters in the cabin that Ted Kaczynski used for various other purposes, uh, one for communication with his family and one for communication with uh, uh, newspapers and, and businesses and things like that. But uh, the very last uh, uh, package that they opened up in the, in the cabin as a result of the search contained what we referred to as his uh, uh, all of his bomb materials, his typewriter, his labels, his packaging, and so forth. So, um, yeah, we did find that there. So, his, as a result of that, pur- I'm sorry, excuse the, me, Mac. the new purpose. Attorney General, okay. um, Janet Reno, uh, said, hey, this is, this is not good. We, you know, it's obvious that he has uh, uh, become much more efficient. His bombs are better. He's back again. We need to have a real task force not a make-believe task force, not where we come together every 30 days and share information, but a real task force uh, working for one boss under one roof full-time. She was a local prosecutor, and she understood that most task forces don't operate that way. So she decided that uh, uh, that should be put under the auspices of the FBI. She went to Director Free and got his uh, concurrence. She, in turn, went to the Secretary of Treasury, Lloyd Benson, and got his concurrence. Then she went to the Postal Inspection Service and got their concurrence. Now, the reason for that is that at that particular time, bombings uh, in the federal system, criminal justice system, uh, were under the jurisdiction of three distinct organizations. Bombs aboard aircraft, bombs on college campuses were the exclusive jurisdiction uh, of the FBI. We had both in this series of bombings. Bombs sent through the mails were the exclusive jurisdiction of the Postal Inspection Service. 
We have certainly had those. And bombs, if you just walked out and encountered them on the street, lying around on the street from a federal standpoint, were the jurisdiction of the uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, uh, and Firearms. Hmm. They were a part of the Treasury Department. The FBI was part of the Justice Department, and the Postal Inspection Service was part of the Postal Inspection Service. So we had three distinct federal agencies. So she pulled them all together. Went to Louis Free, got his concurrence, and uh, Director Free named an individual named George Clow to head the investigation. He was then the chief in, uh, inspector of the FBI. George had been the assistant special agent in charge of the San Francisco division several years earlier. And at that particular time, my partner and I were doing a case involving a corrupt uh, federal district judge, Robert Aguilar of San Jose. And it was, we... Um, convicted a sitting federal district judge for only, I think, the third or fourth time in the history of the United States. Uh, George liked the work that I had done uh, on that case. So when he came to San Francisco to establish the task force, uh, he had carte blanche to um, pull whatever personnel, equipment, and so forth to establish his task force. And his long arm and skinny finger went out and pointed at me and said, I want you, and I had no choice. <laughs> so I had I got the privilege of returning to the city and commuting, you know, three hours a day, uh, uh, working uh, 14 to 16 hours a day uh, with no uh, uh, weekends and very few uh, days off for the next five years. Amazing, amazing. I'm, I'm, and then for the next five years, that that's the bottom line. Uh, wow, we have, to take, we have to take a quick break, Max. We'll have so much more to talk about. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Okay. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Former FBI agent Max Noel, retired, is talking about the apprehension of Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. We knew him as the Unabomber. So, Max, um, when you um, became part of this task force organized by uh, Assembly or, uh, Attorney General Janet Reno and, and uh, your leader, Louis Free, there were like what, 53,000 volumes of documentation? Yeah, the, the first year of the task force was, um, uh, it was non-productive as far as identifying the Unabomber, which we were trying to do, but we, we quickly determined that uh, um, this case had been inhibited in the past by uh, files being all over the place. We had... Uh, ATF files in their agency. We had postal inspection files in their agency, FBI files in our agency. We had uh, uh, 10 different uh, uh, local district attorney's offices, which had their information. We had 15 different local police agencies. So the, the files were all over. So one of the first things that we did was we called for files from everywhere, from all over the nation. And we had those files all sent to San Francisco, of which you can imagine there were lots. <laughs> and, and, and this um, was this was pre-computer. We have to say, right? Because up to this time, <laughs> agents had been trying to work this case using three by five index cards, you know, oh and, and constructing uh, leads and so forth. And, and we quickly determined that it was an information management thing as much as it was a uh, um, criminal investigation. We had plenty of information. We just needed to be able to wade through it in a uh, comprehensive manner. So. The FBI uh, provided us, uh, unlike most of, most of the uh, myths on this, with uh, computers. And um, we brought all these files to San Francisco, and we either um, scanned them or physically uh, uh, retyped them and put them into the system and eventually uh, created what, what became known as the uh, Unibom uh, file. And you're correct. The file was over 53,000 volumes of information, and each one of those volumes contains well over 200 pages of uh, information. Now, a lot of that was administrative stuff, but a lot of it was investigative stuff. So we had to go through all of that, and we had to weed out the investigative uh, uh, results type uh, uh, things, and we had those all downloaded into a program that uh, we decided to use. We used both uh, the FBI's uh, Rapid Start uh, case management system, and we put them into a, uh, um, a system called Zyindex, which gave us the ability as investigators to uh, search things by uh, name, date. Uh, phrase or, or what have you it made it very easy so we could sit at our desk at our computer and say uh, uh, okay I'm, I'm looking at uh, uh, the cams bombing in 1987 in Salt Lake City I want everything associated with a certain thing and boom 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 I, I could pull it up and uh, download it and create my own investigative files so mm-hmm. that was a huge undertaking which took the better part of a year to, to accomplish um, at that same time, uh, we, dis- we said, you know, it's obvious we aren't getting the information. This is what appears to be a lone wolf bomber. Uh, 
the hardest uh, kind of person uh, uh, to track down. Uh, but you can't do something like this in a vacuum. Someone has to be out there who would recognize or know what's going on. What can mm-hmm. we do to bring that person forth? So we um, went out and solicited a million dollars in reward money. Now, the FBI and the federal government doesn't have reward. At that time, didn't have reward money. So we had to go to interested parties, universities, airlines, and other uh, mm-hmm. medical people to uh, enter into formal contracts pledging money so that if a person came forward and gave us information we were seeking, we could give them the million-dollar reward. So that was an intensive uh, thing and had a whole group of people working on that. And then we had so to that, decide. So w- when that happened, then people were very interested, right? You had a lot sure. of calls as a result of that sure. reward. And then, then the, the, the counterpart to that was, well, how do we get the information from the people? Well, we established a 1-800-0-free-not-line. And we encouraged people to call us. And they could remain anonymous, get a, a number. And if the information that they gave to us led to the identification, arrest, and conviction of the Unabomber, they'd qualify for a million-dollar reward. Mm-hmm. Then, how do we get that information out to the people? So we did something that was very unusual in the FBI. We um, uh, went into a close relationship, as close as we could, uh, with various media. We went to every uh, investigative uh, uh, type of uh, program, America's Most Wanted, Unsolved Mysteries, Ida Eye with Connie Chung, Nightline, Dateline, whoever would listen to us for the message that we wanted to uh, get out. And we, we continued that for the next two years going over the message. We believe the person had origins in Chicago. Uh, they were uh, connected somehow to Salt Lake City at this particular time and to Northern California and the Bay Area at this particular time. And we kept adding information as we got information um, to that. And then to stimulate it initially, the letter that went to the New York Times, when they examined that letter, uh, they determined that there was indented writing on it. Someone had written several a note to themselves, several sheets above that, and it appeared uh, under uh, uh, magnification uh, on that letter. We interviewed everyone at the New York Times and asked them if they uh, had, in fact, uh, taken such a message and uh, inadvertently uh, made that intended writing, and no one had. So we had okay. to presume that there was a note that the Unabomber had written to himself, and the writing said, call Nathan R. Wednesday, 7 p.m. So, Director Free, when he announced the $1 million reward and the 1-800 toll-free line, announced the existence of the Nathan R. Writing. That initiated a huge investigation uh, in which we identified, if you can believe this, uh, everyone in the United States that we could identify <laughs> with the first name of Nathan or <laughs> Nate or any derivative thereof and the last name beginning in the letter R. Uh, for your information, there were over 8,500 of them. Oh, um, then we segregated those into areas that we knew that the Unabom suspect had been, essentially uh, the Chicago area, the Salt Lake City area, uh, and various places where his bombs had gone. And we ended up interviewing well over 3,500 people uh, with regard to whether or not they might know who the Unabomber was. And uh, we used the composite uh, uh, drawing. Uh, 
we did a new composite. The first composite had been done uh, uh, after Salt Lake City when he was seen placing that bomb outside Cam's computer company. The artist had elected to uh, do it in color, and uh, I was assigned to investigating um, that series of bombs in Utah. And when I looked at the files, all the files, it jumped right off the page at me that there were like five different artist concepts done at that particular time, all on different days, all a little bit different. And I wondered why. So I sought out the witness who had seen the Unabomber, the only person who'd ever seen him, and asked her why. And she confided to me that it was because... uh, uh, the artist wasn't getting what she was telling him just exactly right. So he kept going in an amendment trying to get it right, and she still wasn't uh, satisfied with it. Hmm. The San Francisco Division had just finished uh, and arrested uh, uh, the kidnapper of Polly Class. And they had used a, the guys working that had used a, an artist, uh, police forensic artist named Jeannie Boylan to construct uh, an artist concept of the person uh, who ended up being Richard Allen Davis uh, from the witnesses that were at the slumber party in which uh, um, Polyclass was kidnapped from. Yes. And if you took Jeannie Boylan's artist concept drawing of that individual and put it beside Richard Allen Davis's mugshot when he was arrested, they were almost identical. Uh, Jeannie Boylan was an artist first, but she was a great interviewer and had the ability to transfer information from a witness onto paper and make it come alive as a real-looking person, not what I always referred to as most police artist concepts look like Mr. Potato Head drawings. They have <laughs> noses and ears and chins and what have you, but they're not very, they don't really look like a real person. Jeannie drew what appeared to be a real person. So I mm-hmm. thought Jeannie out and asked her if she thought she could uh, do something with uh, this witness that we had from uh, seven years previous, six years previous, and she elected uh, uh, to do it. And I took her uh, to this witness's residence and uh, uh, to dispel the myth of uh, the excitement that FBI agents uh, uh, occur in cases like this. Uh, Jeannie interviewed the witness for the next uh, five hours to get the concept, the artist concept drawing. Uh, my duty was to play with the witness's uh, two-year-old child on the floor of her living room and watch uh, Lion King with him uh, <laughs> to distract him while uh, Jeannie came up with the, uh, uh, con- the artist concept. So anyway, those were all things that we did on the initial task force. Um, unfortunately, um, it didn't solve the case. It certainly was the um, groundwork and the foundation for uh, what occurred later, uh, but it was very boring, very labor-intensive, um, and so forth. And, you know, little did we know that the person that we were seeking had a uh, uh, IQ in excess of uh, 170 and right. was very well aware of police uh, uh, and FBI techniques. He had the uh, FBI fingerprint manual in his cabin when we uh, searched it. Uh, he mm. was very aware of uh, latent fingerprints. He was very aware of tool marks. He was very aware of uh, uh, um, all kinds of things that he did. We, we had tremendous amount of input on his efforts to avoid detection, um, you know, during the course of um, this investigation. 
Well, and Max, Ted Kaczynski, um, his objective was he was angry about technology, wasn't he? He didn't, well, he didn't like the progress. Said, but I always called Ted Kaczynski after reading all of his stuff, of which I read it all, 40-some 40, 40 thousand pages of uh, uh-huh. writing we took out of his cabin, that he was what I called an equal opportunity hater. He hated anything and everything that wasn't him. Okay. If you read his writings, uh, he wanted to kill a lot of people. He dedicated his life when he was in graduate school at the University of Michigan, uh, getting his Ph.D., uh, to going to the wilderness and beginning a campaign of killing people that he didn't like. And among Mm -hmm. those people were graduate students, uh, big businessmen, uh, computer scientists, uh, psychologists and people who manipulate other people's lives, um, police officers, government officials, and communists. He didn't like commies either. So, uh, you know, it was... Uh, Pretty much everybody. Anybody who wasn't him, he didn't like. And <laughs> uh, on a whim, uh, we did a huge victimology project uh, trying to determine the connection between the victims of his crimes. Sure. There was no connection. The only connection uh, of those victims uh, was him. Uh, well, it's, each it's one of his a, uh, uh, victims was representational of uh, something that he didn't like. Some were computer scientists, some were computer store operators, some were college professors, some were graduate students, some were uh, airlines, and uh, um, he took an airplane out of the air from Chicago to Washington, D.C., and fortunately uh, the pilots made an emergency landing, and uh, people were injured, but no one was was killed, and when he found out about it, you know, he, he, he wrote, you know, I really could care about all of the innocent people that were on there. I wanted to get some of those uppity big businessmen. That's what, you know, they were all on those planes, those guys, and I don't like them. So, you know. Well, you wonder, you know, he was a a child prodigy. If what I read is correct, he was a Mm -hmm. child prodigy. He Uh um, was accepted at Harvard at age 16. Yeah, he he was assistant or associate or assistant professor at University of California at 25. Right. Uh, I mean, he, he was. A, he went a to Harvard, brilliant. got his uh, got his undergraduate degree in mathematics. Went immediately to Michigan, got his uh, uh, PhD in a minimal time at the University of Michigan, and he came to uh, University of California Berkeley as an associate uh, a professor, and was on his uh, well on his way to uh, uh, gaining uh, uh, tenure and being a full professor of mathematics. And all of that time, uh, he had no intention of staying there and doing that. His intention was to earn enough money to which he could, in his writings, what he said, go to the wilderness and begin my campaign of terrorism. Mm. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what you said, huh? <laughs> well, no, but I, you know, and, and you know, I, I, I hate to sound overly dramatic, but he exhibits the same characteristics as many of these uh, lone wolf bombers that we're seeing now with regard to uh, um, jihadists and what have you. Uh, right. He lived in a very Spartan cabin. He had no running water, he had no electricity. Uh, uh, he uh, uh, lived on, he liked to brag, on $600 a year. Um, he, it, it was single wall construction. The temperature routinely got 35 or 40 below in the winter there. His only source of heat was a pot bellied stove. I mean, it goes on and on. But he dedicated himself to living in that fashion so he could kill people that he didn't agree with. 
Amazing, really amazing. I can't, I can't think of a better word. So, um, so the turning point in the case was this letter he sent to his brother David. Is that right? Well, yeah, the manifesto in that letter, yes. Mm-hmm. What, what occurred was uh, the task force went through several revisions, and it reverted to control of uh, um, George Clow was promoted and left, and Jim Freeman, the SAC of the San Francisco Division, took over the direction of the task force. He elected uh, to go a little different direction than it had in the past, and he put Terry Turkey, who was a supervisor at that time of a foreign counterintelligence squad in Palo Alto. He brought him back to the city and put him in charge of the task force, and uh, they reconfigured it. And we began all over again. Unfortunately, uh, uh, I still remained on the task force. I wanted off, as most people you did. Off? But, uh, oh, I wanted off. Who wants to work uh, 14 to 16 hours a day and commute three hours a day and have no vacations? <laughs> but yeah. anyway, they said, we want you, and I stayed. Um, so through a series of... Um, of um, reconfigurations and uh, what have you. And incidentally, uh, Jim, Terry, and myself uh, wrote a book recently, um, which was published in June, called Unabomber, How the FBI Broke Its Rules to Capture the Terrorist Ted Kaczynski. And um, it goes into depth about the investigation and what the hoops we had to jump through and the things we had to do differently um, in order to solve this case. And it will just, it'll blow your mind to, to read those things because the FBI wasn't designed to attack a problem like this. Um, and we got the concurrence of Director Free, we, meaning Jim Freeman, and uh, we changed uh, the internal structure of the FBI for this particular case in order to uh, solve it. People say, well, it was easy. His brother told you who it was. Well, what people don't know is that uh, 59 other brothers told us with equal fervency that their brother was the Unabomber. And uh, we didn't arrest any of them. So um, we knew because of the size of the case and the amount of information that we had that when the information came forth uh, with regard to a suspect, we would recognize it. The Attorney General asked Terry Turchie that specific question. And Terry said, ma'am, we have the information. We will know when it comes forth. Mm-hmm. Well, Ted Kaczynski got brazen, and he sent a 40,000-word um, manifesto and said Ma- that... Max, hold was- that thought, because we have to take a oh. break, and I don't want to okay. lose this. This is important. Okay, all right. <laughs> okay. I will. Okay. I'll hold it. <laughs> we'll be right back. Okay. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. 
for a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Today's program features the case of the Unabomber, the hunt and the capture, and Max Noel is here to talk about how Ted Kaczynski was captured. Uh, Max, you were just talking about, you just started to talk about the manifesto. Go ahead. Yeah, and uh, the Unabomber mailed the manifesto, and again, it went to the New York Times as well as to a number of other places, and he demanded the publication of this in a legitimate uh, uh, source, New York Times, uh, uh, Washington Post. Uh, um, even main penthouse magazine. So we were in a quandary as to what to do. The uh, accepted uh, um, thing on the part of law enforcement was we don't give in to the demands of a terrorist. We never mm-hmm. do that. Well, as a task force, we decided this was something that uh, uh, we'd never had before. This uh, writing uh, exhibited uh, ideas and uh, unusual phrases and punctuation and what have you. We felt that we had to publish it. So we got the concurrence of uh, the director of the FBI, and uh, the director and Jim Freeman and Terry Turchie uh, met with the attorney general and with the uh, publishers of both the New York Times and the Washington Post and worked out a deal to have uh, that published. That was an expensive proposition on their part. It had to be a supplement in in the uh, uh, Washington Post, and it was published. And the reason for that was we thought someone would recognize that writing. Somebody. And uh, initially, um, we got all kinds of people, but um, no one. Now, you have to understand that we had uh, uh, 2,417 actual suspects. Those aren't people of interest. Those are people we thoroughly believe could possibly be the Unabomber. So after it was published, we got a flurry of activity and calls in on the 1-800 line and so forth, and um, uh, but nothing of substance. And then through a very unusual series of of events, uh, an agent in South Carolina got a call from um, uh, an individual uh, who was a defense attorney in Washington, D.C., that he'd had a relationship with previously, who represented that he had a client who believed um, his relative uh, could possibly be the Unabomber. And what had occurred was, David Kaczynski, Ted's brother and his wife, had been in Europe on a trip when the manifesto was published. When they came home, David's wife uh, went online and read 
a manifesto. And she went to her husband and she said, David, this sounds just like the writings of your goofy brother. And he said, no, couldn't possibly be. My brother never do that. And it was, it was amazing because he had written, Ted had written his brother. He was afraid his brother was getting suspicious of him, a letter in which he said, you know, I know you think I have violent thoughts and we'll talk about killing people and what have you, but you know, David, I could never bring myself to uh, commit an act of violence against another human being because of the good Christian upbringing mom and dad gave us. And then he wrote in his private journal, ha-ha, that'll get David off of my uh, uh, suspecting <laughs> me. And, and it's true, it did. But it didn't detour David's wife, Linda. And Linda made David go with her to a computer, because they didn't have a computer at home, and read it. And David later said when uh, he did, the hair stood up on the back of his neck because he knew his brother had written it. Because he had a 21-page document that Ted had written some 20 years earlier and provided to David that contained exactly the same ideas that were contained in the manifesto and some of the same uh, phrases and, and unusual punctuations. So they were in a quandary of what to do. It took them almost five months to come forward, and they came forward through a finally through a uh, Washington, D.C. attorney named Anthony Basigli. Uh, Basigli went to this agent that he had a relationship with who was no longer in Washington, D.C., and it eventually got to us. And that's when we determined that uh, uh, Ted Kaczynski was the Unabomber. Uh, they provided us with information, didn't even give us the name uh, before they ever brokered the name to us. We had searched those uh, 53,000 volumes uh, in the computer and uh, determined the only person that they could be talking about was Theodore J. Kaczynski, who had been a former associate professor of mathematics at the University of California, and he was now living in rural Montana. And it was and at that you? time that um, I got dispatched to rural Montana to develop the probable cause for a search warrant or additional information for probable cause for a search warrant and or an arrest warrant. So, Max, I, 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 I'm concerned about running out of time, but I, I want to get to the part where you, you have identified the cabin, you have it under surveillance, it's the middle of the damn winter. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of snow in Montana, I think. Yeah, it sure was. And, and you have this cabin under surveillance without him being aware. Yeah. Okay, um, so, we so reverted to, lots of time, Francie, you revert to old time. You know, everybody talks about all the modern things, you know, and all right, of the electronics right. and what have you. No, we reverted to old-fashioned techniques. We needed the description of the cabin. No one had ever seen the cabin. We tried all kinds of things. We tried uh, 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 satellites. We tried uh, uh, high-altitude airplanes to get pictures, and all we got was pictures of snow and trees. Um, we ended up getting a nice picture of his cabin by uh, renting a uh, Cessna 210, putting an FBI uh, uh, pilot uh, in it, uh, and hung my uh, uh, friend who went with me up there, Dave uh, Weber, out the window with a Nikon 35-millimeter uh, camera, a 200-millimeter uh-huh. lens, and flew over the cabin and got the picture. Uh, and, and the reason we were able to do that was because I had developed his neighbor, uh, an individual named Butch Gearing, who owned the mountain on which his cabin was located and all the surrounding property, um, as a uh, um, almost as an informant. He was he was a cooperating witness, is what he was. But mm-hmm. uh, Butch could go up and and view the cabin and and so forth. He took me up there on his skid road because he was in the logging business and would uh, skid. Uh, 
trees off that mountain right past Kaczynski's cabin. So I got a firsthand look at the cabin. Uh, I was able to see Kaczynski one day and said to myself when he stepped out of the cabin to uh, look at us that, uh, my God, uh, I can't believe that's what we've been looking for for 15 years. Um, really? So it was old-fashioned on-the-ground techniques uh, of talking to people. Um, Jerry Burns, a Forest Service, uh, Forest Service police officer, patrolled the area. Jerry became my right-hand person, uh, provided me with information. He'd grown up in Lincoln. He knew Ted Kaczynski. Uh, he was a highly decorated Vietnam War veteran, a highly decorated U.S. Forest Service officer. And uh, uh, I can't uh, say enough for uh, Jerry Burns and uh, uh, the part that he played in this. So, you know, we, we did the work up there. Uh, most of it was done in the old-fashioned way shoe leather and uh, talking to people and listening to people and doing the way that uh, we knew we had to do it in a small community because we couldn't go into that small community with a lot of people. And Jim and Terry um, allowed me the latitude to go there with a small group of people. People have written about, oh, we flooded the area with hundreds of ages. Oh, malarkey. It was me, three other FBI agents, and one postal inspector. That was it until the day before the arrest when we brought in several hundred people to uh, accomplish the um, uh, service of the search warrant and the arrest. Okay. So take us to the day you, that you actually arrested him. How did that well, all transpire? We moved, Every flight that came into um, Helena, Montana that previous day uh, was completely full of uh, FBI and police uh, military personnel. And uh, we we had all the car rentals in, in the entire state of Montana uh, for our personnel. Nobody could get one. When reporters came in the following day to get cars to rent, there were none available because we had them all. But anyway, um, Terry uh, went to uh, the judge early that morning uh, to get the warrant signed. And the rest of us went to our uh, command post at a place called the 7-Up Ranch, which is outside of Lincoln, Montana for our briefing, and we waited until the um, uh, search warrant was signed, and Terry called us and, and told us it had been signed and we could serve it. Um, we had brought uh, San Francisco uh, double SWAT team uh, up there for us, and they got mm-hmm. their ghillie suits on, and uh, uh, they uh, snuck into the woods, uh, unbeknownst to Kaczynski, all the way around his cabin, uh, so in case he bolted or... Uh, uh, tried to run when we attempted to serve the search warrant, uh, um, they would be able to contain him. This uh, mm-hmm. uh, 53-year-old uh, um, portly FBI agent wasn't, wasn't going to uh, chase <laughs> Ted Kaczynski through the mountains, let me tell you. So anyway, uh, they all got in place, and uh, finally around noon, Jim said, okay, let's go. And um, Jerry Burns, the Forest Service police officer, myself, Tom McDaniel, the uh, senior resident agent of Helena, Montana, who uh, uh, became an integral part of my group up there, uh, and I proceeded to go to the cabin. And you just don't walk up onto someone's property in the middle of the wilderness. Jerry was in full uniform. Tom and I were in uh, uh, Wranglers and and Parkas. And uh, when we left the skid road and entered onto Kaczynski's property, Jerry hailed him. Uh, to announce that we were there and we need to talk to him. Uh, there was no response from the cabin, and it wasn't until we were almost to the cabin that um, we could hear someone stirring around inside, although we were convinced that he was there from Butch Gearing's uh, reports to us and our surveillances and so forth. So finally the door opened. Uh, Jerry stood in front of the door, and um, 
said, hi, Mr. Kaczynski, I'm Terry Burns, U.S. Forest Service. I have these two gentlemen here who are representing a certain mining company, um, and we need to uh, determine where your corner posts are on your property because we know you're concerned uh, when this company comes up here this spring uh, uh, that they don't encroach upon your property. And he said, well, my, my corner posts are clearly marked. And Jerry said, no, there's about three or four feet of snow out here, Mr. Kaczynski, and we don't see them, and it would be a lot easier if you came out and showed us so that these gentlemen's uh, employees don't uh, encroach upon your property this spring. And he said, okay. And he took a step out of the cabin toward Jerry, and the plan had been if he gets within arm's reach, grab him. And Jerry did. He snatched him. And, of course, Kaczynski started fighting a little bit. And Tom McDaniel, who's a big man, about six foot three, uh, 250 pounds, uh, wrapped them all up and um, struggled. And I got the privilege of walking around in front of him and displaying my credentials and my weapon to him, uh, telling him who we were and why we were there. And he just melted and uh, totally complied with um, what we uh, requested after that. Uh, we handcuffed him, and we removed him from his cabin, took him down to a um, uh, nearby elk hunting cabin, which was un unoccupied that I had rented, or my, my agents had rented, the agents working with me had rented, and uh, held him there while the search people came in, and uh, it took nine days to search a uh, 10 by 12 foot cabin. Nine um, days. The the amount of stuff that was in there was unbelievable. And you have to understand, this was the most successful booby trapper uh, you know, bomber in the history of the United States. So you just don't walk in the front door. Um, right, the, uh, right. The bomb people, we had a, a military bomb disposal team. We had one of the robots. Uh, they went to the back of the cabin, uh, went up to the top, cut a hole into the uh, top of the cabin, entered through the cabin's loft, and worked their way down um, in clearing the cabin before the search could uh, even begin. And um, the cabin, unbelievably, was a treasure trove of information. Um, we got full confessions that he had written in his journal of uh, every one of the bombings. We got all of his motivation. We got everything that uh, we could ever expect. And as I said before, the very last uh, thing that they opened uh, in the cabin was a large ammunition tin um, can, and they opened it up, and inside, uh, lo and behold, was the uh, Smith Corona circa 1925 mm -hmm. to 30 typewriter with Pica-style type and 2.54 spacing. And we had a documents examiner from the FBI laboratory present mm -hmm. on scene, and uh, he immediately took the comparison uh, uh, typing and... Um, declared that this is the typewriter. So there was no doubt in our mind that we had the right, right. person. So, so it was kind of um, uh, anticlimactic, but it uh, worked the way it should work. Um, you know, we did our I job. We did our background, and all. it worked good. Wow. <laughs> so um, so you, at the, when you went to that cabin, you didn't have enough uh, for an arrest warrant. You... You got the well, we thought we, we, yeah. we, that was a big fight. Too. We, we thought we had plenty for an arrest warrant. Yeah. Unfortunately, the Just attorneys the, didn't think we had yeah. enough, so they said, let's get a search warrant and uh, go from there. By That was at noon that we detained him to serve the search warrant. At 5 o'clock that evening, because of the, the initial search and what they found, uh, they authorized me to change his um, status from being uh, uh, detained for investigation to officially being arrested arrested for possession of explosives. 
Okay, Max, we are at the end of the hour. Can you believe this? We could go on for another two hours, I know. There's so many details. Well, if anyone, I'm going to give my plug for my book. If anyone uh, wants to know about that, go on to Amazon or go to a Barnes & Noble and get Unabomber, How the FBI Broke Its Rules to Capture the Terrorist Ted Kaczynski. It's not about Kaczynski. It's about the investigation, the frustrations of the investigation, and the hoops we had to jump through in order to bring this to a successful conclusion. <laughs> well, you can better believe I will get that right away. So, thank <laughs> I think you. you'll enjoy yes. it. Thank you for your insight, for joining the show today. This is a fascinating case. And uh, if you're interested in advertising on PIs Declassified, contact Sondra Rogers at sondra.rogers at voiceamerica.com. And okay. tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like former FBI agent Max Noel. Thank you, Max. Thank it's you very much. It was a privilege to be on your program. Thank you. It's P.I.'s Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 